0: I can't think of a better time to celebrate communion, frankly, than leading up to Christmas, other than possibly Easter itself. Um, weren't the kids great? There's two things I remember from seminary. They told us do not follow, you're going to preach. First of all, children. Secondly, puppies. I made up that other part about the puppies. (laughs) But for sure, the children are a blessing. And I know probably, regardless of what I say, you guys are going to remember the kids. And so that's all right, too. We are going to go in the scriptures this morning to um, John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. So I invite you to go there in your Bibles, whether you have a printed copy of the Bible, an app, or using the Bible in the pew in front of you. But we're continuing our series in Advent, uh, and we're going to call this particular message this morning The Arrival of Jesus, the True Light. And we'll be taking a look at four verses in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, as we continue to work our way through the prologue to the Gospel of John. Now, Before I get into the sermon itself, I'd like to share with you a true story. All right, so bear with me for a moment. This ties in very well, as you will see, with our message. On February 18th, 1952, the oil tanker USS Pendleton broke in half in a northeaster storm off Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Now, the front half of the broken in half tanker, no one survived. The back half, however, managed to run onto a sandbar and was perched precariously on this sandbar, and they got off a message begging for help. The message arrived in Chatham, Massachusetts, where there was a Coast Guard station. The 36-foot Coast Guard motor lifeboat, and we have a picture of it, the real boat, 36-500, uh, was captained by Bosun's mate, Bernie Weber. And in the middle of that extremely stormy, freezing cold night, Bernie and his little crew charged out from Chatham to try to rescue the people from the Pendleton. Bernie was told, it's suicide. You'll never make it. You'll never even get out of the harbor. He and his three-man crew went anyway. They arrived and found the Pendleton. Now, this is only a 36 foot long boat, but they put on that boat, besides Bernie and his three man crew, they put on that boat 32 men. So you can imagine how overloaded this boat was. And thankfully, the storm finally had died down, but it was still the middle of the night, but they were heavily overloaded. And then the problem was also they were lost because the storm had knocked out the power in Chatham. There were no harbor lights, there were no lights whatsoever in the town to guide them back, and Bernie had the compass swept overboard in the middle of the storm. How were they gonna get back? The people of Chatham took their cars, turned on the headlights, and by the way, this is all told in a film called The Finest Hours, true film, turned on the headlights of their cars and provided light to guide Bernie Weber and his crew and his little motor lifeboat back to Chatham. It was enough. Bernie, his men, and the sailors they rescued all made it. The light of the cars made the final difference in bringing a successful conclusion to a harrowing rescue. Now that's a great story, and again, it is a true story, but Jesus, as he himself said, is the light of the world. And he provides light in a far more desperate and dark place than the middle of the night in a northeaster storm. He provides light in this dark world and provides for anybody who believes in him an infinitely greater rescue than Bernie Weber and his men were ever able to do. The main point of this message is this. If you don't remember anything else, please remember this. The arrival of Jesus, God's light, changes everything. That's what we're going to find out as we take a look at John chapter one, verses nine through 13. The Lord himself said later in his ministry, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, this is the third message in our four-part series on Advent, so let me just review briefly the two previous messages. Two weeks ago, Pastor Daniel preached on verses one through five, where we were introduced to Jesus, who is the very expression, the word that John uses to describe Jesus there is the word, the logos. But he is the very expression, the word of God, who entered the world that he helped create and provided life and light. That's the first five verses of John 1. And then last Sunday, Nathan, one of our elders, preached on Verses six through eight, where we're told about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we're told there, was a witness to the light, a witness to Jesus, but as John himself made explicitly clear in his ministry, he was not the light. Rather, he testified to the light. And now we're going to learn about Jesus as the true light of the world. So here's our outline what we're gonna be doing in the next 30 some minutes. We're gonna be answering three questions about Jesus, God's light. The first question that we'll deal with in our verses, how is Jesus described? We'll find there four facts about Jesus, not just written there, but also written earlier in the prologue. The second question is, how was Jesus received by some? All right? And then the most important question is actually the third one for us, and that is, what does Jesus give? All right? Let's take a look now. Read with me as we read John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Here we go. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man but of god okay that's 1 john or excuse me john chapter 1 verses 9 through 13 all right the first question how is jesus described four facts that are given for us here in these verses. The first fact is actually, I'm going to borrow something from earlier in this chapter, and that's back at verse five. In verse five, if you take a look at it, it says there, the light, that's Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, I have been able a number of times in my ministry to teach the Gospel of John. It's one of my favorite books of scripture. And by the way, if you have never read the Gospel of John, you need to. This is a wonderful, wonderful gospel. As one writer said a long time ago, it's a book that we can wade through and it's also a book that an elephant can swim. Meaning that it is simple to understand but it is also incredibly profound. And that has to do with the words a lot of times that the Apostle John used. One of them here is translated overcome in the English Standard Version. It's not the only way to translate that word. It could also be translated put out, meaning that the light could not be put out, could not be extinguished. It could also be translated understood. Two things that John was trying to tell us there in verse five about Jesus. The first is, he's unstoppable. No matter how much spiritual darkness tried to do against Jesus, they couldn't overcome him. And the second thing is that he's unknowable apart from being his knowledge of him revealed by God the Holy Spirit and God the Father that's why also darkness could not understand him now let's just dwell for just a moment on the fact that jesus could not be overcome jesus himself when he had finished the sacrifice of himself on the cross for our sins we are told john 19:30 he said and in the greek it's one word in english it is it is Finished. And he didn't say that softly. We're told in the other Gospels, he shouted it out, which is not what normally happened when somebody died on a cross. Literally, they expired slowly, but not Jesus. He had finished the work that he had come to do, providing a perfect sacrifice for sins, and darkness could not stop him. Later, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossian Christians. Here's what he said that God the Father accomplished through Jesus. Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. The picture there is imagine all of our sins, all that we have ever done written on a placard, placed on the cross, over Jesus' head, and all those sins are now gone. The debt is paid in full. Literally, that's what the word tetelestai, it is finished, means. No more debt. The sins are taken care of. He, this is Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly in him. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, Satan lost. Jesus won because death could not hold him. He overcame it. That's what the resurrection's about. All right. Imagine to get this idea of that he could not be overcome. Imagine an enraged furious elephant. Got the picture? Okay? I've been to Africa. I've seen elephants that are upset. You don't want to upset an elephant, okay? So imagine this enraged elephant, and these people decide, okay, what we're going to do, we need to uh, protect people from this elephant. So what we're going to do is we're going to put around the elephant a bamboo fence. That'll stop him. Huh. Not a chance. Jesus overcame. Jesus conquered. Darkness could not stop him. That's the first fact about Jesus we need to be aware of. Let's look now at verse nine, all right? The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The next fact we're told about Jesus is he is the true light. A Couple of things about that. First of all, he's the full revelation of God's very nature. One of Jesus' disciples, Philip, totally frustrated the Lord on that night at the Last Supper because Philip said to Jesus, Lord, just show us the Father and that'll be good enough. And Jesus said, Philip, have I not been with you for so long that to know me is to know the Father? You want to know God? Look at me. Because I perfectly revealed my Father to you. See, in the Old Testament, there were hints, there were indications of what the Messiah, the Christ, would be like, but the picture was muddled because people didn't have a full understanding. But they had prophecies, prophecies like Isaiah 49 6, which it says there, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? In other words, when the Messiah shows up, he's not just going to save Israel. That's too small of a thing. That's too light. That's too easy. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for his own people, the Jews. He died on the cross for everyone. And then later, the writer of Hebrews, at the beginning of his letter, he wrote this, comparing what was revealed in the Old Testament versus what we know about God through Jesus. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, we're in the last days, they began when the church started on the day of Pentecost and they carry through until the Lord Jesus comes back. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the first fact, Jesus being the true light, he's the full revelation of God's nature. The next fact, he is the genuine, real, authentic light. He's not fake, he's not false, he's not phony. Later on, we're told by the Lord himself that he is the true bread from heaven. The manna that the people of Israel ate in the wilderness was just a forward or actually a backward picture of Jesus. He's the true bread from heaven. He's also the true vine, John 15, 1, that every disciple of his must depend on. And he's the one that the Father uses to bring true worshipers to himself. My father, before he retired, spent many years working as a banker. And I remember him telling me a number of times, you know how you tell the difference, how bankers tell the difference between real money versus counterfeit? They don't study the counterfeit. They study the real thing. And that an old banker like him can handle the real money and then when somebody tried to slip them a counterfeit bill, they knew it immediately. This is a phony. This is fake, it's worthless. Jesus isn't phony, Jesus isn't fake, Jesus is real, he's genuine, he's authentic. The next fact we're told about him, he enlightens everyone. Now that doesn't mean, as some people take it, that Jesus is gonna save everybody, okay? That's not the idea there. Rather, the idea is is that his arrival, which is spelled out even more completely in verse 14, where John writes the word, that's Jesus, became flesh. But his arrival offers to anyone who believes in him a chance to have a relationship with his father. Now, later... The Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, would write in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, he would discuss this relationship, and here's what he wrote. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. The enlightenment he provides allows us to have a relationship, fellowship with God himself. And the last of the four facts about Jesus as the true light is that the world was made through him. You know, all three members of the triune God were involved in the creation of this universe. All three of them were. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Son was the intermediate agent of creation, meaning that everything was created, everything, in the billions and trillions of stars, and I don't know how many galaxies out there, everything was created through him. Going back to Hebrews, the writer there wrote, in the last days he has spoken by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Another way to say that in better English, his powerful world. You know the old song, he holds the whole world in his hands? It's true. And when he lets it go, which he will eventually, and a new heavens and a new earth is created, which will be our future home forever in all eternity. We're told about it in Revelation 21 and 22. It's going to look very, very different from what we know around us. But for now, he's the one that holds everything together. So that's what we're told about Jesus, how he's described as the light. The second question is in verse, the end of verse 10 and then into verse 11. question is this. How was Jesus received by some? I got a one-word answer. Rejection. Take a look at what it says in the scripture, beginning at the end of verse 10. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That was a choice. Did you notice how many times the word world is used in just a couple of verses, four times. 78 times in this gospel, the Greek word kosmos shows up. And get this, guys, the majority of the time when the world is referred to in this gospel, which basically is this present world's in terms of its beliefs, its values, how it thinks, the vast majority of the time it is hostile to God. God. Yet, God still loves it. That's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the what? The world. In spite of its hostility, in spite of its rejection, he sent his son, his unique son, because he loved this world. Now, a couple of guys writing about this one guy, Leon Morris, it says, he says this, the world did not know him. It never does. The world's characteristic reaction to the word to Jesus is indifference. Another guy, D.A. Carson, he wrote, if Jesus is the savior of the world, which he is called later on in this gospel, that says a great deal about Jesus. But nothing positive about the world. In fact, it tells us that this world is in need of a Savior. It's getting darker and darker out there, folks, isn't it? And I'm not talking about physical darkness, I'm talking about spiritual darkness. Nevertheless, Jesus is still the light. And by the way, the world doesn't just simply hate Jesus it hates anybody who follows Jesus too, right? Jesus warned his disciples and us about this. John 15, verses 18 and 19, he said this, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What's the problem? Why do things get so ugly sometimes for somebody who truly follows Jesus? Why is it there's this hostility so often to Jesus? The answer is given in these verses. Many people have made the choice, as John writes... They did not want to know Jesus. The idea there is a decision was made, whether conscious or unconscious, I don't want to have anything to do with him. You see, sometimes when people really think about it, to know, be known by Jesus means... We can't hide anything from Jesus, but by the way, we can't hide anything from him anyway. Right? He knows everything. Later on John will write in this gospel and said that Jesus did not entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was in the heart of every single person. He knows. John 3:18 and 19 says this, and this is the judgment. The light, that's Jesus, has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. When I was working at the old church many years ago, Linda and I were able to afford, finally, an apartment, a place on our own to live again. So we found this nice apartment in the northeast side of town. Very nice apartment. One of the problems it had, though, were cockroaches. They were big ones. Okay? But you notice something about cockroaches, and that is they do not like the light. You turn on the light, and they scatter. remember one time in particular, our son, who's now in his early 30s, um, I didn't see this, poor Linda did, uh, but he actually had part of a cockroach in his mouth. He was a toddler. (laughs) She slapped it out of his mouth and he started crying, you know, not knowing what I do wrong. You know, I was hungry. It was moving, you know, but Crude illustration, but a lot of times that's how folks feel about the light of Jesus. They don't want to come into the light. But the most beneficial thing that can ever happen to us is to come into the light. All right? To experience the reality of that beautiful relationship with Jesus that he so wants to give us because he loves us. Now, there's a double tragedy in these verses. Yeah, the world did not want to know Jesus, but if we keep reading there was a group of people who most of all should have wanted Jesus, and they did not. So verse 11, he came to his own. Literally, he came to his own property, meaning his fellow Jews, the people who knew the scriptures. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him you got to remember, this gospel was written by a Jewish man himself, near the end of a very long ministry, who for decades had preached the gospel and shared the gospel, and who had witnessed that, yes, some of his fellow Jews came to know Jesus as their Messiah, but the vast majority turned their backs on him. They rejected him, because they did not want a crucified Messiah. They wanted a triumphal king to overthrow the Romans, not what they got in Jesus, the suffering Lamb of God, who one day will return as a triumphant king, but that was not his role at the first time. This unbelief had gone on a long time. Hundreds of years earlier in Jeremiah, the Lord had this message that was delivered in the temple where the people were not believing in God. The Lord said through the prophets, since the day of your ancestors came out of the land of Egypt until today, I have sent my servant, the prophets, to you time and again. However, my people wouldn't listen to me or pay attention, but became obstinate. They did more evil than their ancestors. And then in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, a prophecy about Jesus, it says this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So how was Jesus received by some? He was rejected. Because they didn't want to know him. But we have one more question. And it's the most important question of this whole passage. So the third question, and it's answered in verses 12 and 13, what does Jesus give? These two verses that I'm going to read in a moment, this is the gospel. This is the good news that's available for everyone who comes to Jesus. This is the whole purpose of why John wrote the gospel of John. Because in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says there, this gospel is written so that you may believe or that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life, eternal life in his name. This is a foretaste of it. So let's read it. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, name represents Jesus himself, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The key verb is gave not receive. It's gave. Salvation is through Jesus, and it is something that he gives to us, but we have to receive it as a gift. It begins when he calls people to himself. Now, Paul outlined the whole process of salvation in one verse. The apostle Paul John 8.30, this is what he wrote. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. All deep theological terms, basically saying that what God starts when somebody comes to Jesus, he carries it through into completion, into eternity. Now Jesus says it a little simpler in John 10 where he calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. His people. Here's what he says My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Earlier, John 6 37, here's what he says there All that the Father gives will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, Greek language has a way of emphasizing things differently than English. They have something called a double negative in Greek. Now, in English, we understand a double negative, but it's not proper English, but we've heard it because we live close to Oildale, right? Ain't no way that's going to happen. But you can say that in Greek, and it makes good Greek. Greek. And Jesus here uses a double negative. Literally, another way to translate that, I will absolutely never cast them out. In other words, once Jesus has a hold of us, he holds on. And he says, my father holds on to my people too, and my father is even greater. Now, Notice he talked about this is a right, okay? It's a right to a new identity. See, verse 12 tells us about this undeserved right that we can't possibly earn. Verse 13 tells us about the power source behind the right, okay? That new identity, the word he uses, the phrase he uses, is that we become children of God, that happens the moment somebody believes and confesses Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says there, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, that new identity includes a beautiful glorious future that we begin to experience the moment we come to Jesus. Jesus himself says this in John 5:24. Truly truly, literally amen amen. In other words, listen up. This is important. Okay? Truly truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has present possession has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, meaning that once we've come to Jesus, we never have to fear standing before God, being judged for our sins, because he took that judgment that would have fallen on us, he took it upon himself. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, catch this, okay? passed from perfect tense perfect tense is something that happens and then you have the ongoing effect what does that mean it means that when we come to Jesus we have already crossed over from spiritual death to life eternal life it never stops. Oh yeah, this earthly body, mine is going to turn 62 next month. Believe me, I feel it. Eventually, barring the Lord's return, we're all going to pass. But the moment that we pass in, out of this physical body, guess what? We just entered a new state because we are basically now fully experiencing the eternal life that Jesus offered us offers us that we began to experience the moment we got saved. How many of us have either seen the movie or read the book, The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe? How many? Okay, I see some hands out there, and it's hard to see much of anything in these lights. you remember in that story, when the Pevensey kids step into the wardrobe this musty old wardrobe, shut the door or shut the door most of the way and they keep working their way back through the coats and the next moment, they're in Narnia. This beautiful land where Aslan, a Christ figure, the lion Aslan, is the ruler of this wonderful land. That's a little, little picture of what happens when we cross over from death to life but it's far more glorious than what C.S. Lewis ever wrote about in Narnia. Okay. Now, verse 13 is important. Verse 13, we're given two important facts here that we need to catch. The first, he says there, these people, these people who are now children of God, were born not of the blood, not of the will of flesh, nor the will of man. Now, it's kind of strange words. Basically, what John is saying is that no human effort is involved. We can't do anything to earn becoming a child of God. That includes for the Jews who are very proud of their ancestry saying that, well, I'm a descendant of Abraham. Therefore, I got my ticket into heaven. God's already punched my golden ticket. There are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. We all have to decide on our own. And secondly... There's no human effort. There's nothing we can ever do to earn this. So, John, by saying not, not, nor, basically he's saying, forget about doing anything you can possibly do to earn this. Instead, they were born of God. It's a miracle of God that we can never do a thing to earn, it's a gift that everybody has to receive. So, as we wrap up this message, two very important questions. First question, how will you respond to Jesus? It's absolutely clear from these verses who he is and what he offers. And that leads right into the second question, do you want to become a child of God? Now maybe this is the first time you have ever heard what we call the gospel, but this is it. It's something that Jesus offers that we can never earn. So what I'm going to do in just a moment, I'm going to lead in prayer and I'm going to pray something what's called we call the sinner's prayer. And if you would like to become a child of God, if you would like to know Jesus, I would invite you to pray along with me. And then afterwards, we will have a time of response as Rachel is playing for people who want to come forward for prayer, maybe to share with someone your decision that, yes, I decided today I want to walk with Jesus or maybe you just need to come forward for prayer for anything else, we're here to help. So let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I have done things that displease you. I know that I cannot do anything to save myself. Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life, I ask you to take away my sin, I ask you to give me eternal life so that I can have a relationship with you. I pray and ask this in Christ's name, amen. We're told in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9 verses 9 and 10 that whoever confesses with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, they will be saved. We'll do anything we can to help you to grow in your walk with God if you've made that decision. So again, if you wanna come forward to share this with someone or to come forward for a prayer for something else, We're here to help. You come as the Lord leads.